Everybody. Welcome to the May 15th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on David Siegel, CEO of Denver-based Frontier Airlines, stepping down this week. Details in his departure haven't been released, but the announcement comes after a report highlighting a large number of complaints against the carrier. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Frontier's been our hometown airline. People have been trying to root for it for so long, but since it's gone to this ultra low cost carrier, it's made far more enemies than friends. What do you think? Well, I hope that Siegel doesn't get a golden parachute until he's flown on one of his planes. <laughs> it's impossible not to be nostalgic for the iteration of Frontier maybe three decades ago. Some people might remember when Sam Adams ran it. His wife wrote recipes for the on-air magazine back when those things existed. And Captain Chick Stevens wrote from the cockpit. You just have to love those days when Frontier really was a hometown friendly airline. But I have to quote one of our readers who said that he would sooner date a truck driver he met on Craigslist than fly Frontier. <laughs> that, 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 that's an epic description of where people are at right now. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, is there anywhere to go uh, from here to improve for Frontier Airlines? There's uh, almost infinite zone of room for improvement. <laughs> uh, apparently, there was a big conflict on, on the, his final day in the office when he find out, found out he had to pay a $25 fee to quit and $15 more to get his stuff out of his desk. But, you know, it's the economics of the airline business these days. It's <laughs> an open mic night here on Colorado Inside Out. It's great. Uh, next up, Eric Sonderman, a great young comic from uh, Littleton. No. Uh, Eric, uh, do you think there's a way that Frontier can pull out of this, or are we just basically counting the, the days until they're sold and sold off again and just be done with it? Don't know. I think they can pull out of it. Airlines have risen and fallen, uh, no pun intended there, uh, in, in the past. Uh, to Patty's point, you don't have to go back 30 years to when Frontier was a great airline. I mean, uh, eight or ten years ago, Frontier was an airline of choice for many people in Denver. It was headquartered here. The route system was obviously very convenient for Denver, but it has had this precipitous fall, a sad precipitous fall. Uh, there are a lot of bad, bad airlines in this country with lousy customer service. When you're rated number one as the worst airline, you know you have a problem. I've been waiting for them to change the the animal on the tail, you know, and maybe, maybe put a gopher up there or a weasel or whatever. Prairie dog. <laughs> Prairie dog, but um, it, it is bad. We have all these frontier miles, and you can't give them away. You don't want to use them. can't give them to a charity auction because they don't want them. It, it's bad. <laughs> when, when folks that can't afford to fly don't want your miles, you know it's a bad time. Uh, Todd Shepard, editor of CompleteColorado.com, uh, wrap it up for us. You know, uh, uh, not to be too egotistical about this, I, it was 10 years ago that I moved to Colorado in, in May of uh, 2005. And I remember at that time, as I was just learning the whole environment, the real goodwill that Frontier had. I mean, people really did pull for them. Even when they couldn't fly, couldn't, you know, they had to fly United or they had to fly someone else, they still really pulled for them. And it really has been sad to see this decline over the last 10 years. When you're talking about ultra low cost carriers, not just low cost carriers, the one thing that you really have in your power to differentiate differentiate yourself is customer service. That's the key focus they've got to get on if they're going to survive this. I'd like to see that happen.
86 of Colorado's 100 state lawmakers signed a letter to Governor Hickenlooper this week stating they have lost faith in the leadership of the Department of Human Services. The letter points to problems in various areas and demands a change in top management, including Executive Director Reggie Bika. Petty, after a full session, 120 days, is a week after that that we hear from 86 lawmakers finally seeing bipartisan cooperation uh, on an issue, uh, but a, a surprising venue to Governor Hickler about this issue. What do you think? Well, you kind of wonder where these 86 people were for the last 100 and the first 110 days of the session when they could have brought this up, gotten a lot more attention, maybe made some laws that could have changed it. Auditor Dennis Gallagher went and testified about a bill that would make um, human services, different counties, human services departments more transparent. So there was some discussion of human services, but nothing that gave it the idea that there was this much dissatisfaction. Certainly when you have 86 people sign a letter, you know, where there's smoke, there's some ire, there's no question. Uh, and you have to wonder how Alicia Caldwell is now feeling because <laughs> oh, she right. left that seat to go be the spokesperson for this division. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper has said, you know, he stands by it, they're doing investigations, but 86 people signing on, especially when those 86 people would rarely agree on anything, seems pretty substantial. Well, and they haven't talked to all the other 14 who didn't sign, but at least some of them have said, well, I didn't want to sign the letter, but I want to talk to him myself. So it wasn't like the other 14 had this great uh, vote of confidence for, for Bika or the department. David, did you find the letter as an odd strategy or particular because they, were, they wanted to aim strictly at Bika? I think it was a strategy to get attention after a lot of frustration of trying to do things other ways. They, the legislature did pass a bill to improve the ombudsman's office that, that inspects that department. Governor Hickenlooper resisted it, and so the change wasn't as, as powerful as it could have been, but they made some progress on that. In terms of when was the ire uh, raised, Pat Stedman, who is not a uh, uh, Grover Norquist guy who wants to just cut government for its own, you know, for the, the, sa the sake of cutting, back in January, Stepping on the Joint Budget Committee, accused Bika of deliberate deceit, where they come in and say for the Department of Youth, for the Youth Corrections facility, oh, can we have some more money because we need to hire some more guards? Oh, okay, maybe you do. And then it comes out, we've already started hiring the guards. And so the Joint Budget Committee, in response to what Stedman called deliberate deceit, said, no, we're not going to give you any money, and they took the money from, from someplace else. Governor Hickenlooper says, oh, I'm very surprised that in this letter they say, we tried to meet with you, uh, but nobody, uh, we, we never got through. Um, and Hickenlooper's answer is, oh, gee, I had no idea about that. Uh, we, we've heard that story before. Uh, apparently there's some guy in, in between the receptionist and the governor, there, there's some guy whose job is anybody wants to talk to Hickenlooper about a problem, we're cutting him off. Don't, don't tell John about that. That would get him really angry. We don't want to do that. The broader problem of the Hickenlooper administration is, you know, he's supposed to be businessman, very competent, all this kind of stuff. He has expanded the government in ways into all these new things that were optional. The health care exchange, which is having all kinds of problems, the, the huge Medicaid uh, blow to the, the state budget, without before making sure that the things that Colorado was already doing are being done well and appropriately. This is the safety net for the people who most desperately need it. Adults with profound long-term uh, mental disabilities, the, exactly the people that, that government ought to be there for. 
And rather than making sure that works, he's running off, starting all these new things. Eric, what struck me odd is that the lawmakers decided it was going to be this letter because they had 120 days where they weren't bashful about tackling uh, yoga instruction. Uh, we had uh, you know, high school mascots were a topic. So obviously there was time to do it, but they waited till a week after the session and then sent this blistering letter, but it had a lot of cooperation. How do you read into it? Well, I've always heard the phrase of getting 86 from a job. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might, uh, it might be apt here. I don't know why they waited and didn't deal with this during the session, but in some ways, if you had dealt with this with two or three weeks to go in the session, it gets somewhat lost in the mix because there's so much else going on here. I don't know if it was strategic on their part. I don't know if that amount of calculation went into it. But here, in some ways, and by putting it in writing, which is an unusual step, it's a step that conveys seriousness, uh, it gets more attention, more discussion, and it might have it if it had just been another part of the legislative flow. I had always heard that Reggie Bika was one of Hickenlooper's favorites, that, uh, you know, if you lined up his 15 or 20 cabinet members, that there's a close link between the two of them, the, uh, that he's been always near the top of, of Hickenlooper's list of cabinet members that the governor had a personal relationship with and really valued. I think you see some of that in the defensive reaction, very defensive reaction. Not, a, you know, there's there's an appropriate level of defense that a chief executive needs to mount on behalf of an embattled cabinet member, and then there's extra defensiveness. And I think you're starting to see that uh, over the last 24 hours in terms of how the governor's people are reacting to this. I'll be very curious of whether Bika can survive this. My gut tells me he survives it short term. I would be doubtful of whether he survives it long term. Just the strength of the letter, the words used, David mentioned the word deceit or deceitful that had been in the letter, intimidation. This is not just a policy disagreement between legislators and the department. This is much more of an attack on the kind of culture that seems or at least the legislature perceives exists in, in the upper levels. Uh, of that department, you can't get 86 out of 100 legislators to to agree on the morning prayer, and the fact that you have 86 out of 100 putting their name to this is powerful. Mm -hmm. Todd, the, the 86 number uh, impressed me as well because you didn't see them agree, like, like Eric said, on, on nearly anything to that degree. Um, but they also called out Governor Hickenlooper with this letter. Not only is just about Department of Human Services, but they said, "Hey, we didn't have a chance to meet with you." And, that part seemed a little odd to me because, again, like, like David said, unless they have some <laughs> awesome bouncer in front of Governor Hickenlooper's office, that seemed like, like an odd situation. Out of all the different pieces of this, what's your take? Well, it, what you bring up specifically, it's not the biggest part of that letter. It's just a couple of lines. But the idea, as Dave mentioned, that members of both caucuses would have approached the governor and said, we tried to talk to you, but we couldn't get through the door. That's surprising. Um, I, it looked like I saw Morgan Carroll's name on those signatures. Uh, the Post didn't list them out, you know, specifically. But, uh, you know, let's say she did. Um, I, I would think she would have some line item veto discretion over that letter. And I would try to get something that's personally attacking the governor like that off of that letter. So uh, my take is exactly what you bring up, that that other than these uh, these allegations that there's a top down culture driven by fear. Um, you know, Eric talked about some of the strong language. That was the other strong language that jumped out at me, that there's a culture driven by fear in, in the overall administration of this single department. The other single thing was the fact that they called out the governor saying we tried to talk to you, but we couldn't. That's uh, that's something I think the, the governor 
governor will have to address as he moves forward in this, and he can't just do that by sending Alan Salazar out to meet individually with these reps and senators. The Jefferson County Teachers Union won a temporary injunction stopping the Jeffco School Board's new teacher compensation system. Attorneys for the Teachers Union stated that the board overstepped its boundaries when creating the plan without negotiating with the union. David, I know the different parts of this is that there were attempts at negotiation, and then because they didn't pan out, the board was able. The board decided to move forward without an agreement uh, with the union. Um, your uh, our legal expert at the table. As a temporary injunction, uh, what kind of a hurdle does this pose to the school board's plan? Well, what it, it means is that, so there's 300 teaching vacancies for the, the upcoming year, and the uh, administration had hired 60 new teachers at a, on a different pay schedule from compared to what the, the union contract is. And the judge said, that's okay, they, they can keep their jobs at this system, but for your 240 additional hires you're hopefully going to make between now and, and August, that's got to be uh, paid at the same level or close to it as what the, the existing contract says. Uh, kudos, to, I'd like to thank Chalkbeat Colorado, which put the judge's opinion online so we could read it. Uh, the judge in, in Jefferson County Court, uh, Christopher Zenisek, uh, by his fairly new judge, but by his judicial ratings, is above average for a district judge in, in Colorado and apparently pretty well respected by the Colorado Court of Appeals, which is sort of his supervisor. He didn't agree with all the claims that the union made, but he did say, look, you, you've got a contract with the union that runs through August 31st, and by his interpretation, uh, what the, the board was doing was part of it was contrary to the contract and you, you never know for sure when you read an opinion because it always seems well reasoned if you haven't read the briefs maybe there was some argument that he left out but I, I think it, it seemed like a pretty straightforward down the down the middle decision on the law Eric do you think uh, folks who have been against the Jeffco school board and they've been been able to drum up a lot of controversy from the moment they were seated. Is this a major victory for their opponents or just one other battle in a long history of battles in this war? I think it's one more battle. This is a battle. Uh, it's a war without end at this point in time. Uh, this is one more battle. Score one for the opponents of the board majority. I'll let David you know, handle the legal side of this. That's not my expertise at all. Uh, from a union perspective, that they decided to challenge us, that's what unions do. But you know, let no entrenched, long-time policy, you know, not be treated as as, as sacred dogma. And uh, that's that was the union approach. Now, a contract is a contract. I think the real battle is not this battle we're fighting now. The real battle is coming on August 31st, before mm -hmm. or after, when the contract between the district and the teachers' union expires. And that's when, you know, whether they go the route of Douglas County and decertify the union uh, or, or what other steps that board majority might have in mind, that's when the battle is going to get fought, and that's the high-stakes battle. Right now it's still low stakes. Todd, let's go to, the, right, to that point. Do you think the Jeffco School Board is prepping for the bigger fight in August, and where do you think they'll go with it? 
Yeah, I clearly think they're prepping. I mean, they, they see the long game here. Where do they go with it? Uh, I mean, I think they, they just, you know, ride this out legally like they normally would. I think the, the legal challenge may present a little bit of a blueprint for other uh, unions and other school boards as these issues are no doubt going to start to crop up in just more than Jefferson County and what we've seen in Douglas County in the end. So, uh, you know, I think the, the majority board, you know, they just stay the course. Uh, they treat this as a, a speed bump, as Eric said, it's it's one of a, a smaller battle. It's not the war, and uh, a, a, obviously, all of their eyes and all of their efforts are for the fall. Patty, does this does this light some major fireworks for the fall? Well, as we know, the Jefferson County School Board likes to rewrite history, and this is a chapter they definitely are going to want to rewrite. And maybe they want to get some other legal help. You may recall that how the legal contract they gave was one of the very first things that got them in trouble. Come August 31st, I think we'll be glad, won't, won't the negotiations be open because of the Independence right. Institute, yes. the ballot measure that went through last November, so we can credit our colleagues at this table for at least giving us a ringside seat for what's <laughs> going to be crazy come August 31st. A crazy circus. It should be entertaining. Transparency is at issue this week as a Nine News report revealed that Colorado lawmakers conduct business through personal email accounts. According to the report, messages aren't archived and policies suggest that they be deleted after 30 days. Uh, Eric, after all the kerfuffle we've seen about personal email accounts and the Hillary Clinton uh, issue, um, this, uh, we saw people come together from both the right and the left criticizing what's going on. I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of energy for change. Do you, is this going to be enough to have any changes happen in Capitol Hill, or are they going to ignore it? Well, I think Hillary Clinton is now moonlighting as an IT consultant and working with the Colorado legislature on their, on their email systems because they certainly seem to have adopted her logic. If it works for the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, why shouldn't it work for a state representative for Walsenburg or a state senator from, from, from Craig, Colorado? If it's good enough for Hillary, it's certainly good enough here. This has become disturbingly the norm, both in Colorado and other states, for too many public officials, that you get a Gmail account or a Yahoo account or whatever your preferred provider is, and, and you can conduct business away from sunshine laws and away from archive requirements and, uh, and basically do private business when it's the public's business. I find it disturbing. I know we saw this a number of years ago with Governor Bill Ritter and his private, uh, private account uh, on top of uh, his public state of Colorado account. I'll let David weigh in on this because I think there was some court litigation related to that and, 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 and maybe the governor on that one was upheld. I, I find it disturbing when Hillary Clinton is taking this approach. I find it disturbing when Colorado state legislators are taking this approach. Public requirements in terms of archives and scrutiny and transparency are there for a reason. They ought to be supported. Todd, you are not only part of the Nine News Report, but you and CompleteColorado.com have done some amazing work when it comes to uh, sunshine laws, freedom of information. This is uh, old territory for you. Get us up to date with folks maybe not have seen the report to the, the basic issue, and what's your take? Well, the, the, I, I think the main thing here is, is this isn't a scandal in terms of these people aren't breaking the law. This is how it's always basically been set up for these members of the General Assembly. Um, and it's not even that it, it's been hidden because that they've used 
used uh, a Todd Shepard at state.co address. Many of them, when you would go to the General Assembly website, you would see uh, it would be Todd Shepard at Yahoo. I mean, they were they were open about the fact that they were using some alternate accounts. So it's always been this way. But does it support the highest level of transparency? Certainly, it doesn't. And um, you know this this notion that uh, that the the retention policy is uh, 30 days. Um, you know, again, I did some work with the Freedom of Information Coalition uh, back in February where we looked at state agencies. They've recently migrated to Google email. You would think that they would have enormous archiving capacities because of that, but in fact, that's the exact opposite. They're, it's very difficult to to retrieve emails that have been double deleted. The, the uh, deletion policy is the same in terms of we recommend everything be thrown out after 30 days. So th there are enormous improvements that can be made here. I don't think all of them have to be done legislatively. Uh, and I, I will say that uh, it's, it's in the very early stages, but I am working with, uh, again, the Freedom of Information Coalition, along with partnering with Colorado Ethics Watch, and I think we'll be working with Nine News as well to see what changes we can make again without having to get involved in legislation or executive orders or mandates of any kind. Patty, you lead another great investigative journalistic team at Westward. Um, is this a big deal? Do people need to be more upset about it? Well, I think they need to be smarter about it at the legislature. And for the most part, anyone who really wants to leak something knows to do it on the telephone you know, and not be recorded or just sneak the documents in. No one has any trouble doing that. So this is just, they're not thinking I, because there are sneakier ways to do underhanded things. They just need to record these because that's what open records calls for. David, what kind of changes do you think should happen? That when you have a .state.co address, it, it, that it be the same as if you're a state employee. You know, if, if you work for the Department of Human Services, for example, I think that's just an address you have rather than how it's being used now for the legislature only as sort of just a, a, a proxy for the, the, the Gmail account that's your own personal account. You're, when you do the state business, you just have that on, on a state account. And uh, kudos to Colorado Ethics Watch. As with the, the human services problems, this is, you know, they're a very left-wing group, but they're working with Todd on good government and transparency. Colorado officials announced this week that recreational pot sales broke another record in March, eclipsing $42 million. Meanwhile, U.S. Senators Cory Gardner and Michael Bennett are co-sponsoring a federal bill that would exempt low-THC marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, Todd, let's get your quick take on this one. Uh, do you think Gardner and um, Bennett are going to be able to make some headway on this issue? Uh, great question. Uh, obviously, you know, we see the bipartisan support up front. I think, uh, you know, from the way I understand it, the bill is aimed at what's called Charlotte's Web, the, the low THC oil that helps um, young children with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there has been no single media component of the whole, whether it's recreational or medical, no single component has really sort of opened people's eyes as to the the, the realities of marijuana, like this Charlotte's Web oil has. I know the Gazette did a series on it maybe a, a year ago, but I also know CNN, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta did a, a number of, of shows uh, that were seriously focused on this. And when you see these before and after uh, examples of these children who were having numerous seizures per day, and then they're running around playing in their uh, the front yard, with, and they're down to one seizure a week, it makes an enormous impact on you. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, they certainly have PR on their side. Patty, what's your quick take? 
Well, and I think hundreds of families have moved to Colorado so that they can get this medicine for their children. I think it's smart to deal with it federally. I think it'll go through. And at the same time, why don't they deal with the banking issue? If we have $42 million in sales in March in one state, it's only going to stretch across more states with time. We have to have a federal solution for banking. David, what's your take? The reason that the Senators Gardner and, and um, Bennett are having to, to sponsor this legislation is because of the Obama administration. Marijuana by the Drug Enforcement Agency is on Schedule 1 as a controlled substance, which means it's ultra-super dangerous and it has no uh, medical uses. They could move it down to administratively. Obama could do that tomorrow to Schedule 2 and put it in the same category as methadone, which we're super strict about and we know it can be abused, but we say it has some medical uses in controlled settings. All of Obama's preening about his compassion and stuff like that. How about put your money, put your regulations where your mouth is and end this completely unscientific idea uh, that marijuana should be on Schedule 1 instead of a lower schedule? Eric, finish up for us. Just to the bigger picture of the pot sales and, and, and the continued escalation of, of that sales volume, when we started down this road, I think there was two schools of thought. One is it was going to be a novelty and it would hit big at first and then taper off. And one was the opposite of that, which it would slowly come in and gain further acceptance. And, and as it became legalized, but not even legalized, normalized, that it would gain further acceptance. If these numbers are indicative, we're probably headed down that second path. Time for Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. The Kingdom of Glendale, where <laughs> Mayor Mike Donovan, the libertarian gubernatorial candidate last November, they now want to use eminent domain, which is not very libertarian, to push their Glendale 180 project. David. Dudley Brown's uh, recent fundraising letter uh, where he describes what happened at the Colorado legislature and manages to, in, although he's got hundreds of words, never reveals to his donors that he was the one who insisted that 26 legislators uh, co-sign a letter uh, opposed to re-legalizing 30-round magazines. And then he says that the think tank leaders me and John Caldera, who helped to write the framework of the 30-round magazine ban. The truth of that, in a sense, is that I helped to write the clause that exempted shotguns. Wow. Eric. A restaurant up in Millican, Colorado, up near Greeley, the Rub and Butts Restaurant, great title, that decided it would be a good idea in early June to have White Appreciation Day. I get the point. I even understand the point. But talk about tone deaf. Talk about bad timing. And even if you buy into the point uh, that we have too much racial and group categorization, this isn't the way to deal with it by just having more of it. Todd. Planned Parenthood for attacking Senator Ellen Roberts, trying to tar her with the personhood brush. It just doesn't stick. Say something nice rather quickly. Patty. Two new appointments. Joe Negussi, who's going to be head of the Department of Regulatory Agencies. Good luck. It's the Hickenlooper cabinet. And <laughs> also in that, in Dora, we have Rafina Hernandez, mm -hmm. another alumni of this table, who's going to be in charge of the, the director of the Civil Rights Division. David. B.B. King, who passed away recently, 89 years old, king of the blues, 15,000 live shows, and performing up until just uh, two years ago. Wow. Eric. It was good. I wasn't here last week when we talked about Dan Haley, another former member, recent member of this table, but kudos and congrats to Dan on a, a big job with Colorado Oil and Gas Association. He's the right person, and it's nice to see the good guys sometimes win. 
Denver Parking for uh, promptly issuing refunds with uh, some tickets that were issued because of a glitchy app that they had. Nice. I will add to our Say Something Nice. We have uh, members of the Calhoun family joining us for the taping today. We appreciate it. They've always been big fan supporters of the show, so we appreciate you being here. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. And also be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. You also won't want to miss the premiere of our new magazine series, Street Level, Tuesday at 8 p.m., looking at the food, arts, and community stories of some of our historic streets. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.